All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Joe Biden has announced that anybody, any business with more than 100 employees will now have to require vaccinations or face federal punishment. Does he even have the power to do this? I mean, for those of us living in a free country, that's probably the primary question on the top of our minds right now. And that is the question that we are going to get to today in making the argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. For the last couple of days, the, the number one constituent call I have gotten, whether it's a call, whether it's an email, whether it's running into somebody at the store, at church, or whatnot, is, oh my gosh, did you see what Joe Biden said, and can he actually do this? The second question is, if he can do it, or if he's going to do it, what can we do to stop it? And that's some of what I want to get to today. Uh, we're we're going to do what we always do on the show, which is we're going to go ahead and we're going to give you the left-wing argument. We're going to give you the conservative response, but then we're going to talk about some other practical things that you can do in order to push back against this sort of federal overreach. But first things first, let's go ahead and ask ourselves, what exactly is the narrative? What are the arguments being used in order to justify this sort of behavior at the federal level? Now, obviously the most, the most obvious argument that's been used is this is about public safety, right? Well, but a lot of things are about public safety. That doesn't mean the federal government has the authority to come down and make these sorts of pronouncements or, or threaten this sort of federal government action. So the question is, is what is the specific narrative used to buttress this argument as something that is necessary, something that is appropriate, and ultimately something that is constitutionally valid? Like, does the federal government have this kind of authority? Now, there's some people believe that this is purely a distraction from anything that's going on within Afghanistan right now, that this is not going to hold up in court. And I certainly hope that's the case with respect to not holding up in court. Uh, but I do believe that there are many within the government, many on the left, that think that this sort of power is appropriate and that this sort of power is actually what the government was designed to do. And so let, let's look at some of the narratives we hear. Obviously, the first one we, we've heard, right? This is about public safety. And the whole reason why we have a government in the first place is to provide for things like public safety. And so this falls within that category, right? That's one narrative that's used. Another one is, if you oppose this, then you don't care about people, right? There's this kind of blatant emotional appeal that if you don't approve or, or you don't want to comply with something that the government is doing in order to combat COVID, it must mean that you either don't recognize COVID as a threat or you don't care about other people, or you're more concerned about your business or your vacation or whatever else it is. And so essentially there's this moral flaw with you, which is used as the you know, explanatory you know, reason for why you're not supporting what the government's trying to do. Another argument that we've heard pretty much throughout the pandemic, but we're hearing again, is that, well, the only way we're going to get back to normal, of, of some kind of normalcy, is that if everyone gets the vaccine, 
Um, and, you know, and, and in order to do that, clearly, you know, you've had the option, you've had an opportunity to do it. And as Joe Biden so eloquently put it, you are trying his patience, right? We're trying his patience right now. Those of us that either haven't, or those people that haven't had the vaccine uh, or don't intend to get the vaccine. So those are kind of the, the general narratives that we see, that this is about public safety, this is about returning to normal, this is about loving your neighbor, um, this is about public safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So what are the specific arguments being used in order to support this particular government action? And I've gone through and I've, I've looked at how people have responded to me on this, whether it was on you know social media, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, some of the news reports that you see. And there's a couple different arguments that are being used. Um, one of the arguments is that this essentially falls, the reason why the federal government has the authority to do this is because this falls under the general welfare clause of the Constitution. So if you're familiar with the Constitution, the general welfare appears a couple of times in it, but we're, we're most familiar when we talk about the preamble where it's to promote the general welfare, and it's an explanation of why the federal government is being established in the first place. Here's the issue. Promote the general welfare cannot mean that the federal government gets to do whatever they think promotes the general welfare. And the, and the reason why we know that is not what it means, the reason why we know it does not give that sort of unlimited power to the federal government is because there would have been no reason to essentially write anything else with respect to uh, amendments to the Constitution. There, there wouldn't have been a, a need to talk about the enumerated powers of the executive branch, the judicial branch, uh, congressional branch, because if this was all just a question of well, the federal government, as long as they decide it's within the general welfare of the people of the United States, therefore they can do it, right? Nobody interpreted it that way. Now, you might have some people like Alexander Hamilton argued one way about the general welfare clause in the, uh, in the Federalist Papers. You know, he, he basically gave what I think is the correct view of it, which is to say that it was, it was a general concept that to say that when the federal government made decisions, that they should be decisions that affect the entire body politic. That, um, but it's limited within the enumerated, enumerated powers that the states have delegated to the federal government. So for instance, you see this uh, argument sometimes too with the supremacy clause where people say, well, if the federal government's passed a law, then states are obligated to abide by it. Well, not necessarily. The reason why we have enumerated powers is to restrict the authority of the federal government, right? It's to set boundaries for where the federal government can act and where the federal government is not supposed to act. It's also why we have a Ninth and Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. Ninth Amendment was, made to, was in order to make sure that everyone understood that simply because um, a, a right might have been discussed in the Bill of Rights or somewhere else didn't mean that those were the only rights that the people had. And then the Tenth Amendment was once again explaining that anything not expressly delegated to the federal government belonged to the states or the people. Okay, but now we have this kind of more you know, progressive uh, interpretation of the general welfare clause, which is to say, and, and you see, I see this from people on the left all the time on social media. The moment someone says, where exactly in the constitution does it give the federal government authority to do something, you immediately run to, oh, it's the general welfare clause. Again, that cannot be true. You didn't have any founders arguing for that. In fact, the anti-federalists were concerned about the general welfare clause in the constitution because they thought it would be manipulated. And the people that supported the constitution all wrote, almost universally saying, no, 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 that's not what it means. Clearly, that's not what it means because if the general welfare clause had the sort of power that everyone was afraid of at the time, then there would have been no reason to have enumerated powers under the Constitution. There would have been no reason to really do anything else because essentially the federal government would have had any sort of authority provided that a simple majority within the legislature believed it was serving the, quote, general welfare, right? So, so no, the general welfare does not justify what President Biden is trying to do right now. 
Another thing you'll see is with the Interstate Commerce Clause. It's this idea that because the federal government has the power to regulate trade or regulate commerce among the several states, that essentially if it wants to come up with some sort of OSHA criteria, that it, it can tell you that, okay, if, if you do business um, and that business in some way affects other states or interstate commerce, therefore the federal government now has the authority to come in and make regulations uh, that would govern your, your business. Now, again, once again, this is a complete misinterpretation of what the Interstate Clause uh, Commerce Clause was designed to do. It was designed to make a free trade zone within the United States. Um, and and it, was, it was meant to cover very specific, specific forms of, of transaction. Uh, but it wasn't meant to regulate anything that could fall under this new broad definition of commerce. And now we even see it because of the decision that we had in uh, 1942 in Filburn, um, where the federal government, where the Supreme Court ruled, I believe, horribly and incorrectly, that the federal government could come in and essentially regulate your garden because if you were growing, I think it was either wheat or corn, if you were growing corn or wheat for your own consumption, then that means that you wouldn't go to the store to buy wheat. And if you'd gone to the store to buy wheat, maybe that wheat would have come from a different state and therefore interstate commerce would be effective and so the federal government could regulate it. Nobody in their right mind, when, when the interstate commerce clause was being written, interpreted it that way. Nobody interpreted it that way. This was a decision by a bunch of Supreme Court justices that got the hint when FDR threatened to pack the court and realized that if they didn't start giving a rubber stamp to some of his uh, New Deal uh, laws that they might be in trouble. But there, there was absolutely no sound judicial reasoning in saying that simply because something could potentially affect interstate commerce, therefore the government could regulate it. it completely reject, complete rejection of the actual interpretation and intention of the Interstate Commerce Clause. So, uh, and, and you actually start to see some pushback in the Supreme Court. In fact, one of the things I'm hoping is that if the federal government does make an argument that they can essentially tell a business that if you have 100 employees, you have to require vaccinations, and they want to try to use Interstate Commerce Clause as justification for that, I'm really hoping this is a time for the Supreme Court to kind of put the reins back on this leftist progressive interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Because otherwise, if, if you know, if, if the current interpretation stands, it really does give the federal government way too much power with respect to how they can intervene in businesses and how you run your business. Uh, because it, it, it used to be at the very least, if you were concerned about falling under federal regulations or federal laws, you could do business exclusively within your state and now you're not affecting interstate commerce in any way, shape or form. Well, again, because of you know ridiculous decisions like Filburn, the federal government can come in and say, even if you have your business and even if, if it's within the borders of a particular state, even if you do all your commerce within the borders of a particular state, because you doing your commerce within that state in, in some way, second or third order effects, other, you know, other commerce, which could be interstate, therefore they can regulate you. Again, there's, there's no end to that, right? That's a, that's a bottomless hole with respect to the reasoning that the court used. So I'm hoping the Supreme Court will use this as an opportunity if the federal government argues along lines of interstate commerce uh, that they can regulate. I'm hoping the, the Supreme Court will use this as an opportunity to kind of rein that back in because it's been a huge problem. All right, and this leads us to uh, the last major argument that I've heard uh, that says that the, the federal government has the ability to do this, or the government in general has the ability to do this. And that is a Supreme Court case in 1905, and it was uh, decided 7-2. It was called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And it said that uh, public health measures like vaccination imposed by states are constitutional because, in essence, living in society comes with restrictions, including those pertaining to public health. 
right? And so, so that was the argument that the Supreme Court made in Jacobson in a 7-2 decision. And that was all spurned on because you had a client that Jacobson came and basically was pushing back against mandates that the Massachusetts um, government was making because him and his family actually had bad reactions to the vaccine. And so they didn't want to take it. And the Supreme Court ruled in that particular case that the government had the, power, the uh, ability or the power to be able to impose this. Now, here's what's interesting. You fast forward to um, uh, the Bell decision, which had to do with eugenics and forced sterilization. And it was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. or Oliver Wendell Holmes who wrote the argument, the opinion, essentially using um, Jacobson versus Massachusetts to say that that which extends to vaccines for public health can also extend to the fallopian tubes. And he ended it with saying three generations of imbeciles is enough. So literally in this country, there were thousands upon thousands of people that were subjected to forced sterilization because public health experts had determined for them to procreate and to have children was bad for society overall. And so they could do that invasive process and prevent them from ever having children. All right. So Jacobson versus Massachusetts was you. The reasoning that was used in Jacobson um, was then reapplied in uh, Buck versus Bell in 1927. And so the, the point I want to make here is that as we're engaging in this sort of argumentation, we need to be prepared to, to combat each one of these arguments, right? So let, let's, let's kind of go through everything we talked about before. The General Welfare Clause does not provide this sort of justification of the federal government. Because again, the federal government is bound by the enumerated powers. It doesn't get to do whatever it considers is within the general welfare, right? It can only do those things that it is authorized to do. And when it does those things, it's supposed to only do it as it affects the general welfare, right? So even within the enumerated powers, the, the general welfare clause was actually a, a further restriction on federal power if you look at it through the light of enumerated powers. Because the state said, okay, Here's your list of responsibilities. Here's the things you're going to do with respect to toll roads and with respect to going to war and with respect to maintaining the army and navy, et cetera. Like here's your, here's your duties and responsibilities. Okay. And as you do these duties and responsibilities, you are supposed to be keeping in mind that your job is not to execute this duty in such a way that only benefits one person or only benefits some or only benefits a particular region. You are supposed to do so with the general welfare of the entire country in mind. Right, so that, that's a proper interpretation of the General Welfare Clause, not just this idea that provided that 51, you know, or 51 percent of the legislature and the president agrees, thinks it's okay, well then therefore do whatever you want. That's never what it meant. Um, it, that is a completely unreasonable interpretation. Anybody that uses that argument is not familiar with the history of the General Welfare Clause, as well as the anti-federalist and federalist arguments that were taking place over the ratification of the Constitution. Right, so you got to push them back toward. Wait a second, General Welfare Clause is essentially bound by enumerated powers, all right? That's, that's one of your arguments that you use in order to, to take the whole general welfare debate down. Um, and again, if, if you want to reverse that on, you say, oh, okay, great. So if Republicans were in control and Donald Trump was president and he decided, you know, you know he wanted to do something that you didn't like, or let's say he decided that, uh, you know, gosh, we're just, we're just going to, um, you know, or... Um, you know, we're going to completely get rid of funding for something that you approve of. And he said, well, I think it's in the general welfare. Or, or let's say he said, you know what, all federal employees are going to be required to sleep at Trump uh, hotels whenever they travel. And he said, well, I, I figure that's within the general welfare. No, you wouldn't like that, right? You wouldn't like that because, again, we're, it was there to restrict federal power, not to let them do whatever they want. Okay, 
Interstate Commerce Clause. Okay, again, this is not a blanket grant of power to the federal government to be able to regulate any sort of commerce which goes on within the United States. It was written under very narrow terms with the intention of setting up a free trade zone within the United States. The definition of commerce has been broadened significantly by the court over time. The most ridiculous decision was probably uh, Filburn in 1942, where the federal government or where the uh, Supreme Court literally decided the federal government could regulate your own garden because it would have an adverse effect on interstate commerce or potentially could. Okay, and since then, the Supreme Court has tried to rein that in. Hopefully, what this is going to be is an opportunity, again, for the Supreme Court to get us back to more of a traditional understanding of interstate commerce so businesses and states do have more freedom with respect to how they conduct themselves. Um, and then finally, the, the Buck versus Bell um, juxtaposition with Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So again, one of the, the big arguments that you're going to see from the left is Jacobson in 1905 decided that the, that the, gover the governments could mandate vaccines. Right. And as part of being public safety. And then we and, and again, a, a part of you can look at that and say, OK, I, I kind of get it. But isn't this isn't this a bridge too far? Isn't the, is, can't this be used for ill? And we saw right there, Buck v. Bell, 1927, where the same reasoning that was used in that court decision was then used to you know, compel people to engage in forced sterilization, like thousands upon thousands of Americans. This was not just, you know, a one-off in, in, a, in a state somewhere. This was all across the country where the Supreme Court has essentially said that because, you know, you know expert, public health experts and, and sociologists had decided that this was a good course of action, that therefore it could be mandated by government, right? So that's the problem that we're in right now. And the overall question here is, is I think, it, it's it's complex. I get it because when you are talking about something that can easily spread and affect other people just by people going about their daily business, there there is reasonable concern and there's a reasonable desire to be able to want to combat that. The best question is how do you do that? And I, I, again, I, I think vaccines can be a a marvel of medicine. Um, I, I think vaccines have have done you know most vaccines have done wonderful things. There's been some that have done some bad things. There's been people that have had bad reactions to it. And one of the problems that we have is, again, whenever we're talking about something so personal as health concerns of that nature, especially when we're talking about something where you, when you, you get a vaccine and it protects you and then it contributes to the overall herd immunity, all right, the idea that would you, you would then compel by force others to take the vaccine uh, simply under the guise that, well, the government has the government has a responsibility to encourage public health, therefore we can force you to do X, Y, or Z. That's a very dangerous proposition. We've already seen within our own country's history how that dangerous proposition with no limiting principle, okay, that's a very important thing, a limiting principle, an idea of, okay, you might accept this up to a point, but what's the principle in which we stop it? And typically one of the areas where we've stopped the federal government for, or the government in general is when the government attempts to come in and violate the sanctity of our person. Right? We, we understand when the government comes in to protect another person from wrongdoing. Right? Someone tries to kill you. Someone tries to steal from you. Someone hurts you. We understand the role for the government right there to provide protection and to provide justice and to adjudicate the dispute. Right? But we're, we're very, very, historically in this country, we, we grate against this idea that the government is going to come in and micromanage very, very personal decisions with respect to our lives. And so the fact that there was, there was little to no limiting principle on Jacobson versus Massachusetts led to problems in, in Buck versus Bell. And now we're seeing it lead to more problems as we're trying to figure out what exactly, what authorities does the government actually have. So this all leads me to the final segment that we're going to answer some of the most common questions that I've received lately on how do you fight against this. Okay, so first things first. When somebody is asking for your vote, because obviously these decisions are being made by elected representatives, 
When somebody asks for your vote, it is not good enough for them to just share their political party with you. It is not good enough for them to just check off little boxes on, oh yeah, I'm pro-business or I'm pro-worker or I want more taxes or I want less taxes. We really have, as an electorate, we really have to go beyond the superficial responses that a lot of our politicians give us in order to get into the heart of why do they believe what they believe? So if you want less taxes, why? Right? Because there's, there's good reasons to want less taxes, and presumably there can be bad reasons to want less taxes, but I want to know why you want less taxes, right? Or if you're, if you're for or against guns, maybe you have noble intentions with respect to your gun control laws. Maybe you have noble intentions with respect to protecting the Second Amendment. I want to know why you believe what you believe. And that is a question that we don't ask enough, right? We just automatically assume that whoever disagrees with us has bad intentions and whoever agrees with us has good intentions. I'm here to tell you, I know people who disagree with me on policy positions, but still have good intentions. I think they're wrong with respect to their policy prescriptions. They think I'm wrong with respect to mine, but I don't necessarily doubt their intentions. There's other people that agree with me on a particular topic, and I might not agree with their intentions. We, we may agree on a particular policy prescription for two entirely different reasons. I'll never forget sitting on the, on the floor of the House of Delegates, and I think there was like two or three of us that voted no, and 97 people, 98 people voted yes. And what shocked people was that I was one of the no votes, and there was another person on the other side of the aisle who was probably the most diametrically opposed person to myself when it came to our governing philosophies. And someone said, why, were, why did you two vote no on this? And I said, well, we, we voted no, but for very different reasons. I voted no because I thought this particular bill was cronyist. My, my colleague voted no because he doesn't like private sector economics, right? He wanted to, you know, he would have probably rather nationalized the industry. So we both voted no, but for very different reasons. And that is why it's so important that you understand, okay, not only the intentions, not only the you know, stated policy positions, but the underlying reason for why your representative believes something. And so when it comes to things like public health, right, the, the first question that you should be asking when it comes to something like public health is not, what is your strategy in, in the result of a pandemic or in the uh, occurrence of a pandemic? It should be, what do you see as the authorities and powers that have been granted to you by the federal constitution, by your state constitution? What authority do you even have? Because a lot of times I will see elected representatives start talking about their ideas on things. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't even have that authority in Congress. That, that's not even an enumerated power within the constitution. So, so why are you waxing intellectual about legislation you're gonna carry on it? You don't have the authority to do it. And that's one of the primary questions we need to ask of our representatives. So that's step one, understand where they stand. And if they are willing to essentially promise you anything you want, or if they're the sort of person that the moment there is a crisis or the moment there is a problem, they automatically throw out any sort of limitations on their power in order to do what's best for the general welfare, you're going to have problems with that person because that is someone that doesn't see any real restrictions on their power provided the circumstances are correct. And those people get in a lot of trouble with respect to overreaching or overstepping their bounds. So that's the first thing that you need to do. Second thing that we're going to have to do, and this is the answer, or, or second thing that we're going to have to do is there's going to have to be legal challenges to this. So again, when the federal government decides to proactively do this, when Congress passes a law, when your governor decides to do something, or state legislature decides to do something, the moment it adversely affects you, okay, 
or, or that it affects somebody else, you're looking for somebody that has standing, which is to say that they have, uh, that legally they are permitted to be able to challenge this within court. And one of the things that you're looking for is an injunction. You're looking for a judge to come down and say, I don't think this order is constitutional. And so therefore it cannot be executed until we've determined whether or not it is constitutional. Right. And most executive branches will, will withstrain themselves from continuing to carry it out. Um, and, until the issue is decided. Not always, but, but a lot of them will. So that injunction is very important because what it does is it provides some legal protection to you as a plaintiff or to you as someone that might be in a similar condition as a plaintiff uh, so that you know, the government can't automatically come in and punish you or maybe it prevents you from getting fired um, or, or it can put a hold on the process while it gets adjudicated through the courts. Okay, and if you don't get that injunction, a lot of times, even if a court, if a later court comes back and says, "Hey, yeah, you 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 weren't authorized to fire these people because you you went beyond your your constitutional powers," um, you know, again, that might not that might be good in the end, but it might not do you a lot of good in the interim. All right, so you you want that judicial injunction, which can at times either slow down or halt the process until it's been a fully adjudicated within the uh, uh, court system. So that, that's the, the second component. The first one is elect the right people. The second one is be prepared to either be a part of a lawsuit um, uh, or initiate a lawsuit uh, challenging a, a uh, in this case, like a, a federal regulation or an executive um, order or whatever it is. Um, you know, be, be willing to challenge that in court so you can either stop, slow, or eventually overturn the process through the court system. That's the second remedy. Third remedy. Third remedy is civil disobedience. Let me be very clear about what I'm saying here. I am not suggesting that someone go out and engage in violence. I'm not suggesting anyone go out and engage in vandalism. If you do any of those things, um, you, you can and should be arrested. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for anyone to go out and engage in any sort of a violent act against somebody or their property or anything else. That's not what I mean by civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is essentially saying that I'm going to peacefully not comply. And, and that's the situation a lot of people are in right now. There was actually a really interesting, um, I can't remember if it was a tweet or, or a quote from an article. I can't remember off the top of my head, but essentially it was, it was a, um, a member of, I think, a board of directors on a company. And he was saying that he goes, we think our employees are just going to go get vaccinated if, if they want to continue to work. We think they're concerned enough about losing their job that they'll actually get vaccinated. He goes, but if they don't, basically he said, we're done, we're finished because we can't continue to operate our business with 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50% of their workforce just saying, well, forget it, I'm not working here anymore. And this is why the government has come in and tried to tell people that, well, you know, hey, look, if you, if you quit as a result of this uh, requirement, then you won't be eligible for unemployment, which by the way is pretty interesting, right? When the government's the one that controls your unemployment insurance, they're the ones that get to dictate terms to you on when you can take it, even though you paid into it. Yeah, pretty interesting, isn't it? But it's, it's that larger um, thing where they're trying to scare people into doing what they want you to do because I think the, I think the Biden administration is even a little bit uh, questioning whether or not they could win this in court because it's such a far-reaching mandate or requirement. And so a lot of businesses out there are, honestly, they're terrified. In fact, some of the hospitals right now, you'll see some of the language that they'll use where they'll say, oh my gosh, we don't have enough beds for the different patients we have. Well, remember, when they're talking about a bed, they're not just simply talking about the number of beds available within the hospital. They're also talking about beds and staff, right? Because you got to have a certain amount of staff in order to see a certain amount of patients. So basically, if you kick out a bunch of your doctors and nurses because they didn't get the vaccine, you might have more beds available, but that doesn't mean you can take on more patients. 
right? So it's, it's really important to understand some of the, the arguments that are being used here. But civil disobedience is a very effective tool. It has a very proud tradition in this country. All right, the, the civil rights movement was, was largely built around the idea of peaceful resistance to laws which were unjust, unconstitutional, and were just, at a baseline, immoral. And, and the, the trouble with that is, you know, obviously people want to find a way that they can operate within the system, within the legal system, in order to you know, make a correction. And, and that's good. That is how we should operate. We should always try to find, again, the, the, you know, the best way within the system in order to fix it whenever possible. However, when somebody is, and in my opinion, clearly violating the constitutional limitations on their own power or when they're engaging in something that is either unjust or immoral, there can be an appropriate place for civil disobedience. But sometimes that, sometimes that involves pain. Sometimes that involves losing a job or getting arrested. Um, again, it's very, very important that people act peaceably in this. And the other thing that I would say that I think is important about civil disobedience is make sure that you're not punishing the wrong people on civil disobedience. I, I've seen people before where, you know, they'll, they'll lay across the, the freeway or they'll, they'll go and they'll do a sit-in in somebody's place of, of business or whatnot based off of, you know, what their perceived uh, frustration with some corporate entity. Don't hurt an innocent person in your civil disobedience. And by hurt, I'm not talking about physical violence. You should never do that. Um, I, I'm talking about don't do something... Uh, don't do a form of non-compliance that ends up hurting somebody that, you know, isn't responsible for what's going on. So, <clears throat> but doing things like essentially saying that, look, if you force me to take this vaccination, I'm not going to do it, I'll quit. Um, you know, that sort of, that sort of um, action, I think, can be very, very effective and I think can send the right message to businesses where they're essentially saying, look, I I'm sorry, you know, I know the government is threatening to punish me if I do this, but I'm going to go completely out of business if I fire half my employees and so I'm not going to fire my employees. That's a form of civil disobedience, a form of non-compliance that, again, is peaceful. You're not requiring your employees to, to do anything. You're just saying that I'm not going to fire them simply because I have 101 employees. I'm not going to fire them or make them all get vaccines. I'm not going to do that. right? But it's also important for, again, if, if you support your employer doing that, if you support the business you're working for standing up for your right to make those medical choices, then it's important to also have their back as well because they could face some consequences as a result of noncompliance. All right? But again, very important. Whenever we're talking about, if you believe that civil disobedience has become appropriate in a particular thing, don't engage in violence, don't engage in vandalism, don't hurt people or, or hurt their property. Don't do that, right? That, that's not what we believe in. And, and two, make sure that the civil disobedience that you're engaging in is, is actually directed at the people that are responsible for the decision that you're protesting. Okay, not, not, an, not an innocent person that has nothing to do with it. All right, that's all the time we have. I wanna thank you for joining me on Making the Argument and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.